Well, welcome to the City Church. My name's Clayton Walker. I'm the lead pastor here of the City Church. If it's your first time joining us, man, we're honored that you're here. We know it's a big step to walk into a new place, especially a church. And, and we are in week four of a series called Project One, where as a church family, we are looking at where God is taking us as a people and what it's going to take to get there. And we're calling this series, we're calling this season that we're in Project One. <laughs> Excuse me. And our team has put together these guidebooks, Project One guidebooks. If you, if you don't have yours, if you forgot it, if you haven't been here, whatever the reason, if you don't have one this morning, would you just lift up your hand? Our team is coming to pass these out to you and get you one or maybe another one. Uh, but it's, it's extremely important that everyone in our church family has their Project One guidebook, has one, has a copy of one, uh, because in this, you're going to see our vision, what we've been talking about over the last four weeks, where we're headed, and what it's going to take for us as a church family to get there. So definitely grab one of these. Our sermon notes are in there as well for this whole series, our group guide, everything. And we want you to kind of spend some time reading through this guidebook and praying through it before Commitment Sunday, which is next Sunday. We've called this series and this season Project One because the scripture teaches us that there is one God, there is one name by which we are saved. That's the name of Jesus. There's one mediator between us and God. The scripture says that's Jesus. There's one name, Peter said in Acts 4.12, that's been given to men by which we can be saved and made right with God and forgiven of our sin. One name, one mediator. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to heaven except through me. One God, one name by which we are saved. Paul says in Ephesians, this means there's only one faith. There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Paul tells us in Ephesians that because of the gospel, one God and one name by which we are saved, because of the gospel, there's now one family, that Jew and Gentile are now one family in Christ. And so whatever your background, whatever your uh, identity or demographics, like before you became a follower of Jesus, in Christ, we are now one family, and that's our, our primary identity now. Children of God in the family of God. So one faith, one family, and Jesus gave this one family, the church, one focus. That's to go and make disciples of all the nations, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So we have a mission as a faith family. As the church of Jesus, we have a mission, a focus, and that is to make disciples of all the nations. So one God, one name by which we're saved, one faith, one family, one focus. That means we've said in this season, Project One, that there should only be one choice, one choice. If all those things are true, and I believe that we are, and our church believes that they are, if all those things are true, then there's only one choice going all, all in on one faith one family and one focus, all, all in. It, it can't be some of us give all or, or all of us give some. It must be all, all of us, all in. Only one choice. If there's one God and one name by which we are saved, if there's one family, one faith and, 
in one focus. And we've said in this series that it's time for a new core group to rise up. We had a core group of about 100 people that helped start this church a little over four years ago. And that core group gave faith and surrender and sacrifice and risk to launch this church. And now we've said in this, in this project one season, it's time for a new core group to rise up and become shoulder to shoulder with our original core group and, and give faith, surrender and sacrifice and risk so that we might step into a new season here at the city church. So we're praying that this project one season that we're in is going to set us up and propel us into a new season. And if you've missed the last weeks of this series, I wanna encourage you, go online, get caught up. There's a great 12 minute video talking about our vision and, and where we're headed. There's been three other weeks of messages. This is week four. We had this past week, advanced commitment night. That's on our website and podcast and app as well. I, I want everyone in our church and our church family to be completely caught up and on the same page before commitment Sunday. So if you've missed any week, or if you weren't able to be here for advanced commitment night, go online, get caught up before Sunday, because we all want to be on the same page as we covenant together as a community to step into this next season of our church. It says in Acts that they were of one heart and one mind. And that's our prayer, that you and I, that our church family will be of one heart and one mind. So that's why I want all of us on the same page in this season as we set ourselves up for the next season. As we said a second ago, Commitment Sunday is next Sunday, November 13th. I want to challenge you to be here next weekend as we covenant together as a church family and take these steps together, these steps of faith together. And if for some reason you can't make it, you can go online to our website uh, and make your commitments there over the next few weeks. I'm going to say it again that I believe this season of our church is a defining moment as we seek to be a remnant, a faithful people of God that God uses to turn the world upside down with the great news of the gospel. And that's, that's our hope, that's our prayer, that that's what the Spirit is doing in us, turning us and transforming us into this faithful remnant that God can use to turn the world upside down with the gospel. And we've, we've said this every week, but to realize Project One, like to experience this, and to live out all the things that we talked about in week one and, and, and in your guidebook, like to realize all these things, to live for and to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves and make an eternal impact in our city and in our world. It's going to take each of us individually and corporately together as a church walking the same path that a man by the name of Abraham did. And so we're diving into his life and we're seeing how God multiplied his life for eternal significance. And more importantly, the path that God led him down to accomplish that, because it's the same path that you and I are going to have to walk to. If we want our lives to multiply and to count for eternal significance. And isn't that what you want? Like, that's what I want. I don't want to just take up space and pay my bills and consume resources, right? I don't think you do either. I think you want to live for something that's bigger than you, a, a name, a story that's, that's bigger than you. And if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you saying, yes, that's what you were created for. That's what you were designed for in the first place, to live for a story and a name that's bigger than you, to make someone else famous, not yourself. 
Like that's why you're on this planet. And the Holy Spirit of God, my, my, my prayer is throughout this series is saying, yes, yes. I'm gonna live for a story that's bigger than me. I'm gonna make the name of Jesus famous. And so we're, we're calling ourselves in our church to live for the glory of God, to, to, to live for that which we were designed to live for. We're, we're just calling that out in us and pointing us to that so, so that we might loosen our grip on the things of this world and take hold of glory, take hold of that which is eternal. What we are created to live for, a name, a story that's bigger than ourselves. So many people, especially in our country, are living for a very small story. And in their boredom, they go from drink to drink, party to party, trip to trip, work day to work day, paycheck to paycheck, sporting event to sporting event, leisure activity to leisure activity, vacation to vacation, like trying to fill this eternal whole and place in our hearts and it's not working and we get bored with those things because while there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves they will never satisfy you because they you weren't created to live for those things you weren't created to live for secondary things you were created to live for primary for eternal for glory and it's why so many including christians are so bored with christianity because they're living for a small story, a small name that they were never designed to live for. And I love this, this picture we keep going back to in this series that, that, that our hearts, my heart, your, your heart, they can get severely out of alignment just like a car. And, and we drift to either self-sufficiency or self-centeredness. And we need the Holy Spirit of God to come in and, and bring some alignment, some realignment to our hearts so that we don't waste our lives giving ourselves to secondary things that will never fulfill us and will ultimately be boring in the end. We need the Holy Spirit of God to bring a realignment to the mission of Jesus that we might live for something that really matters and makes sense in light of eternity. That's, that's my hope, that's my, that's my prayer for, for me, for my family, it's my prayer for you and, and your family. And throughout Abraham's life, we see God bringing realignment again and again and testing him to see if Abraham really believes, if he really trusts in God, if he's really ready to, to follow him anywhere. I mean, think about it. Like, why didn't God immediately give, give Abraham his son and the land that he promised him? Why not just give it to him immediately? Why not just whisk him away to the promised land the very moment that Abraham agreed to follow him? Instead, he has to wait 30 to 40 years for his son, and he wanders along this journey fraught with danger and heartbreak and setback. Why? Because God is not just trying to take Abraham somewhere. He's trying to make Abraham into someone. It's not just about the what's that he's going to get. No, it's about who God is transforming him into. And so that's what this Project One Season's about. It's about God not only multiplying ministry through us, but multiplying faith and surrender in us, transforming us and our hearts. 
And so this is another one of those times where the Holy Spirit, I pray, is just bringing realignment back onto primary things, back onto the things you were designed to live for. And so in Genesis 22, we see Abraham go through another test, another realignment, this one by far the most difficult that he's ever faced. And so turn in your Project One guidebook to week four of our series. The verses are gonna be on the screen as well. But by, by Genesis 22, Abraham has had his miracle baby. They call him Isaac which means son of laughter, because this whole thing, let's be honest, has been hilarious. It's been, it's been funny. I mean, think about it. Abraham and Sarah are both 100 when Isaac is born, which means that for every birthday and anniversary, they're probably asking for diapers and baby stuff, right? I mean, this thing is hilarious because they're in their old age and they have a baby, well, in Genesis 22, verse 1, sometime, it says, sometime later, Isaac is now about 15. So some time has passed here. And it says, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Now, he, he, here I am is not just Hebrew for, hey, God, what's up? That, that's, that's not what he's saying here. When God calls out for Abraham and Abraham says, here I am, this is in Hebrew, a statement of surrender. It's I'm standing ready for your command, God. That's what it means. I'm standing ready for your command. I'm, I'm, I'm here totally and fully surrendered to whatever you have for me and to whatever you ask of me. Now, to be honest, I find that reaction pretty remarkable, right? I mean, considering that every time God has called Abraham, up to this point, he seems to ask him to leave something good or attempt something impossible, right? I mean, I'd be honest, like I'd be tempted to be like, oh, oh no, God, that's you? Oh, geez, great. Um, what is he gonna want this time, right? I mean, that's, that's, if we're honest, I think that's what a lot of us would be thinking, like, oh geez, here he, here he comes again. Like, what's it gonna be this time, right? I mean, let's be honest, some of you thought that in this series. Like, oh gosh, it's one of those kinds of series again. What's he gonna ask us to do? What's God gonna try to tell me to do this time? Like, right, I mean, let's just be honest. Like, it is for me too. If I'm being real, if I'm being honest, like this, this, this stuff is not easy for me either. It's uncomfortable. But we don't ever run from that which is, un from what's uncomfortable. We, we don't run from conviction. No, we embrace it because we trust that there's something God has for us on the other side. So we embrace the discomfort. We embrace the, the conviction that comes with a series like this, when, when God comes calling. We, we embrace like what's probably the, the, the he, one of the heaviest passages in all of the scripture today. And we don't lighten it up and we don't run from it. We say, no, God, what do you, what do you have for me? And we deal with it. Because on the other side of that conviction, on the other side of that weighty feeling, it is glory, it's peace, it's joy. It's God's best. And so Abraham says, here I am because he trusts God. That's the difference like in a life of drudgery and a life of joy. It's like whether you trust Jesus. It's why the hymnist said, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise, just to know. Thus saith the Lord, whatever you, whatever you say, whatever you have for me. You show me a happy Christian and I'll show you one who has learned to trust. Paul said, 
I've learned the secret. What, what, what secret, Paul? I, I've learned the secret of being happy in any and every circumstance. And then Paul goes on to define what those circumstances are. He says, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether poor or rich, Paul said, I, I've learned the secret. I can be happy and content in any and every circumstance. Uh, Paul, how? How can you be happy and content in any circumstance, whether well-fed or poor, whether happy or, or, or sad or something? Like, how can you be content in any and every circumstance? And Paul says, I've learned the secret. The secret is Christ in me. I've got all I need in him. Paul said in Ephesians 1, we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Like, did you know, Christian, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. In Christ, it's already yours. Every spiritual blessing. And so Paul's like, what more could I possibly need? What more could I possibly ask for? Like, poor, rich, well-fed, hungry, like whatever the circumstance, like I'm great because I've got Jesus and he's all I need. I've got every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. What, what more could I possibly demand of God? He's given me everything. Everything I've got in Christ. Paul said, I've learned the secret. Verse two, God says, take your son. Now, scholars tell us this, uh, that the language here in Hebrew really slows down dramatically. Like everything in Abraham's life has been happening like at a rapid pace up until this point. But in Genesis 22, the, the pace just <laughs> slams to a crawl. Like you read it like this in Hebrew, take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. And go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. What God is saying here seems unbelievable. It sends shockwaves through Abraham's soul. The, the word for son in Hebrew, Ben, it's used like 10 times here in this passage. Over and over and over again. Your son, your only son. Your son that you love. You see, this child represented everything to Abraham. This was the child of promise. This is what they'd left everything for. All their hopes and all their dreams and affections centered upon this child. And now as an old man, this is all Abraham really loves in this life and, and lives for in the world anymore. And God says, offer him up as a burnt offering. Now I know... The question's probably in your mind, how could God ask something like this? And we'll dive into that here in just a moment. But for now, just know that you could let this represent the one thing that you treasure most in this life. The one thing that makes life worth living for you. Or, or, or maybe in this series, it's like, the, the, the thing that you thought, God, there, there's no way God, you could ask me to do that or, or sacrifice that or, 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 or give this. As the text proceeds, you're going to notice that no one's really talking here. There's just silence. As I'm sure Abraham's breath has been totally taken away and is absolutely speechless. 
Verse three, the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son, Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Three days of journey. Like I'm thinking in three days, I would have talked myself out of this, right? Like day one, huge step of faith. Day three of a journey, like to obey God. I'm thinking most of us, including myself, like we're gonna talk ourselves out of whatever God has told us to do. I mean, some of us know what it's like. We, we start out in faith so well, but then day two and day three come along only to reveal us faltering in faith and being unfaithful. Like maybe you're there now. God's called you to like break off a bad relationship to honor him and you did, but, but now you're bitter at him from asking you to do so. Or, or maybe he's told you like, you need to stay in that marriage and nothing's really changed yet. And so you're mad at God because it hasn't gone maybe according to your expectations. Or maybe he's called you to a ministry assignment, but you're not seeing the fruit and now you're angry at him. It was supposed to be all warm fuzzies and goosebumps and large crowds, but, it, but it's just not. Or maybe God led you to make a financial sacrifice, but it's gotten hard and now you're mad at him because you feel like you're missing out on something. You don't really show your faith in the initial yes. You, you show it on the third day. Verse five, stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there. Isn't that interesting, the way he describes what's about to happen? Abraham knows the sacrifice that he's about to make and he calls it worship. He knows the cost that he's about to pay. He calls it worship. We're gonna go and worship. And then look what Abraham says. And then we will come right back. Who's we? Abraham's leaving his servants. It's Abraham and Isaac going up this mountain. And Abraham says, we're, we're going to worship and then we are coming right back, like Abraham and Isaac. Abraham believes <laughs> that, that, that somehow, like that they're both coming back. Like God has a promise to fulfill and he doesn't know how it's going to work out, but, but he knows that it's going to. Because God made a promise, and this child of his is the son of this promise. And Abraham believes that somehow God is going to come through on his promise. We, we're coming back. Verse 6. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Imagine your child asking you that question. God will provide us sheep. Man, what a statement. God's going to provide a lamb. 
a lamb sacrifice. God is going to provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. And now we see what Abraham's probably been doing for three days in that dark silence. He's been reminding himself of the promises of God. He's probably been recountering the encounter in Genesis chapter 15, where God took responsibility for both sides of the covenant. You, you remember that from a couple of weeks ago? Like, like you, you promised, you, you went through the halves like on your own. You, you promised, like this was all on you. And so perhaps Abraham's recounting the the promises of God, this covenant that God has made. You see, what drove Abraham up that mountain was not the strength of his own character. Abraham wasn't saying, I got this. Like, I can do this. No, Abraham was reminding himself of the promises of God and saying, God, you're faithful. I can't do this you can. I've been nothing but unfaithful, but God, you are always, you are always faithful. You see, the only thing that can drive you onward as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother through difficult times and financial hardship and suffering onward to that third day is not the strength of your character. It's not doing better and trying harder. No, the only thing that's going to carry you on to that third day of obedience is unwavering conviction in the goodness and promises of God. Verse 9. When they arrived at the place where God told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, if Isaac is strong enough to carry the wood, then he's definitely strong enough to evade or overcome a frail hundred plus year old man, right? I mean, my son's 15. He's almost as big as I am, right? If I'm over a hundred, Levi's going to drop me in two seconds. It's not He's not going to have any, any problem with that. I, I, I assure you, Isaac is 15. He, he's strong enough to take his dad. He's strong enough to, to quick enough to run away. But here he is crawling up on the altar, trusting God and trusting his dad. Would your teenager do that? Would mine? Come on, let's get real. What's what's happening? Why, how is a teenager willingly going up on this altar? The only way Isaac would do this is that he had inherited this this trust in God from his dad. Like he had heard his dad talk about the Lord and his faith in the Lord. He, he, he must have seen his dad like living out his faith in God. Like, and his dad's trust in God must have caught fire in his heart. This, this kind of faith isn't taught, it's caught. Something has happened here from Abraham to Isaac where Isaac has caught the faith of his father. And so it, it will, will how you live and give and obey and worship, like is that going to teach your kids to trust God? 
I pray that it is in my life. Verse 10. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. Now, let me take a moment to address the question that people throughout church history have been asking, like, how could God command something like this? Like this passage has been offensive to many people and maybe it is to you too. But this was not just a command to murder Isaac. If so, Abraham could have just stabbed him in the tent. That's not what's happening here. Something much deeper is going on. You see, the offering of the firstborn in the Old Testament symbolized the debt that man owed to God. Throughout the Old Testament, God lays claim to our firstborn because it represents your very life. In the Hebrew sacrificial system, God required the firstborn of cattle or sheep to be sacrificed to him, as well as the first fruits of grain offerings. The only way you could spare the life of the firstborn was to make a sacrifice in its place. And so at the Passover, God kills the firstborn of every household that did not have the blood of a firstborn lamb on the doorpost that had died in the place of that firstborn son. And so in other words, the life of the firstborn was forfeit unless some sort of redeeming sacrifice was made. God was showing that there's a debt that every man owes to God and it goes to your very life. That's why Abraham understood what was being asked of him. Tim Keller, theologian, author, pastor said this about Genesis chapter 22. If Abraham had thought God had told him to kill Sarah, and then I know you will love me, he, Abraham would have never done that. He, he would have concluded that he was hallucinating because God would not have commanded senseless murder like that. And God would not have said it because it would have been murder. But when God said, offer Isaac, Abraham knew exactly what that meant. The firstborn. It represented his very life and the debt every man owes to God. And so with the knife suspended in the air, verse 11, at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Not what's up, God? Here I am. I stand ready at your command. I am in complete and total surrender to you, Lord. Here I am. Don't, don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Abraham shows there's nothing. There's nothing that he is not going to entrust to God. There's nowhere that he is not going to go with God. Verse 13. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. And so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. You see, what you name a place is extremely significant in Hebrew literature because it encapsulates, it summarizes the significance of what happened there. And isn't it interesting that they call this place the Lord provides and, and not how Abraham obeyed. 
You see, something more important than Abraham's impressive obedience is demonstrated to us here. It was God's commitment to us. You see, centuries, centuries later, another son, another one and only son whom the father loved would walk up a mountain. And again, that son would willingly crawl up on the wood. This time, however, the knife would not be stopped in midair. It would slash through straight to the heart of Jesus. And that's what this whole scene, this whole drama, this foreshadow. Years ago, when Levi and Coben were toddlers, I was reading the Jesus storybook Bible to them one night, and we came upon this story, and Levi said, Dad, don't, don't read this story to us. I don't, I don't like it. And um, there's probably good reason for that, right? It's the story of losing a firstborn son, and Levi was the firstborn, so it made a lot of sense. But um, he said, this story makes me sad. I don't want to hear it. And um, in that moment, you know, I'm trying to like lighten it because it's a heavy story and not even a kid's Bible can really lighten what happens here. And, and so I'm, I'm trying to kind of lighten the story up. And, and while I'm trying to excuse all these things away and well, it doesn't really go through with it and all this kind of stuff, like in my, in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to lighten the story for him. And the Lord, like one of the clearest times I've ever heard God speak, speak to me, I, I feel like it was almost like an audible voice. God said to me, Clayton, don't lighten it for them. I went through with it. Don't lighten it. Because I did go through with it. You see, these mountains of Moriah were right outside of Jerusalem. And many scholars believe these are the mountains where Calvary would have been. In other words, on the very mountain where Jesus would die, a drama was enacted hundreds of years before Jesus came. It's as if Abraham plays the part of God and Isaac plays the part of Christ, but only up until the moment that God stops the sacrifice and points to the lamb caught in the thorn bushes. More than 1,000 years later, Jesus would walk up this same mountain, but this time no substitute lamb would be provided because he himself would be that unblemished lamb. He would willingly stay on the altar as the father plunged the knife of justice from your sin and mine into his chest. And because of that, because of that sacrifice of a one and only son by our heavenly father, we can know that the father loves us since he has not withheld his son, his one and only son from us. And the Bible tells us in Romans three that it's when you trust in that sacrifice, that payment of your fine through Jesus' shed blood on the cross, that your sin is forgiven, you're made right with God, and you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Not by doing better and trying harder, but by trusting in the Father's sacrifice of his one and only Son on that wood, on that altar, for your sin and my sin. And when you give your life to Jesus, you trust in his payment of your fine, and you believe that three days later he rose from the grave, the Bible says your sin is forgiven given. You're made righteous, right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Not when you've done better or tried harder, but when you believe 
Romans 3 says, when you believe that Jesus shed his blood and sacrificed his life for you, paying the fine for your sin and mine. And some of you are here today, you need to give your life to Jesus today so that you could be saved from your sin and made right with God. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today or come talk to one of our pastors afterwards. We'd love to celebrate that decision with you and pray with you and point you in the right direction. But you see, here's what you've got to understand. This story is not first and foremost about Abraham's commitment to God. No, it's about God's commitment to Abraham. And that's why the mountain was commemorated as the Lord will provide, not, oh, look at how Abraham obeyed. The Lord will provide. And when it's all said and done and you look back over your life, the thing that's going to stand out is not your great sacrifices for God, but his steadfast faithfulness to you. And the more that you see that now, the more willing you come to obey. And when you see that God has not withheld his son, his only son, the son that he loves for you, then what could we possibly withhold from him? Here I am, Lord ready for your command, total and complete surrender. Now watch what happens next. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called again to Abram from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Have you noticed in this story over the last few weeks that every, every time Abraham like trusts and obeys, God renews and intensifies the promise, the, 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 the covenant here. It's not that God needs an Isaac. He doesn't need an Isaac. He doesn't need your Isaac. But God is looking at our hearts. And when we go all in with trust and obedience, God brings multiplication because Abraham obeyed. God multiplied him like the stars in the sky. And you and I sit here as a couple of those stars. Because Jesus obeyed, we're saved. And by extension, when we obey, others are saved. Like because of our faith and obedience, God multiplies his kids. On the earth. He doesn't need us to do that, but he chooses to use us. And so here's my question for you this morning. Is your all on the altar? Is your all, is your Isaac, whatever that might be for you, is your all on the altar? Because here's, here's the challenge this morning. Surrender. Here I am, Lord, ready for your command. Total and complete surrender. Surrender means you've got your all on the altar. That's what surrender is. My all is on the altar. Abraham's offering on this mountain encapsulates all the things we've said should characterize our offering to God during the season of Project One. And so when we fill out our commitment cards next week, there's a few things that at least that should be reflected on. And number one is faith. Just like Abel, when he offered his offering to the Lord, God, you get the first and I, I'm gonna trust you with the first and best knowing that you're going to provide. I, I, I think these cards should have sacrifice re reflected on them like, like Abraham gave his first and best. 
Like, like David in 2 Samuel verse 24, he has this opportunity to make this offering and there's this guy that says, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you what you need to make this offering. And David's like, no, I'm paying for it. Why? David says this. Because I'm not gonna make a sacrifice to the Lord that costs me nothing. The Lord, the, the, the Lord is worthy of my Surrender. I'm not going to make a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Faith, sacrifice, finally full surrender. Full and total surrender to God. You see, sur surrender is different than adjustment. You can make little adjustments and still be in control. So surrender is totally different than adjustments. You can, you can obey a lot of the laws of God, go through the motions and not be surrendered. And some of us are like that. Like, we're good Christians, we're active in church, but there's an Isaac that God is still not in charge of. Surrender is the response of a grateful heart that says, God, you gave everything for me, and without you, I have nothing. And so in response, here, here's all that I have. I'm totally and completely surrendered. The, the hymn writer probably said it best. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This isn't demands like a tyrant demands. No, this is demands as in deserves. Lord, you, you deserve it all. My soul, my life, my all. I want you to see how one couple in our church, John and Sandy Gomez, have been processing in this season and, and, and why and from where the Lord is leading them to go all, all in. So check out their story. When we first were told that you guys were starting this church, we were like um, super excited. And we were like, yes, we're in, what can we do? Like, how can we support you? And we've just been coming ever since and have not regretted it. We have been, we've been all in, we love it. We wanted to support that in any way that we possibly could. And we, at that point, felt like we were gonna be all in on whatever we uh, could possibly do to help um, get this church going in the right direction. Um, well, we do lead a small group, and we have for a while. We've, we've been leading a small group for years, and then we both volunteer every week. Uh, I, I am involved with the campus safety team. I am the team leader for the First Impression team and love that. Sandy was going through um, her back issues and, and medical problems that were associated with that and, and uh, it was determined that she was gonna have a major surgery done to correct those problems. And uh, uh, the outpouring of support from this church just overwhelmed us. It was big. I mean, it was so powerful. And just, you could feel the love that God had shown us. I mean, it was so present and it was just like he had placed so many people in our lives in all these different areas with friends and friends of friends 
and nurses and doctors and just everything. But the outpouring from this church has been, I mean, it was, it was huge. It was really amazing to hear all our prayers being answered through everybody that God put in our lives. I love to give to people. I love to serve people. I love to do that. I don't like people to do that for me. So the challenging thing for me was recently with my surgery when people were coming, calling me and saying, okay, we are gonna come over when John's gone. We're gonna come over. We're gonna clean your house. We're gonna cook your meals. We're gonna come and be there for you and basically help you in everything we can help you with. We're gonna bring you food and do all these things. And for me, that was a challenge because I'm like, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. And a very good friend of mine um, said, please don't deprive us of blessing you. Like, don't do that. You do that for so many people, don't deprive us of blessing you. That was something that was a big challenge of generosity that I have struggled with recently. The Bible teaches us how to be godly and how to live a life that is fruitful and with many blessings. And, and the blueprint is there in the Bible. I mean, and, and we're learning that all the time. Get off the fence and, and, and get involved in, in this community. Get involved in, in this church. I felt like you guys were all in on us. And I feel like you guys have always been invested in us and probably everybody that has come through the doors. You guys, I just see it each and every week when I'm serving and greeting, I just feel it and I feel the energy. So why would we not be all in? Why would anyone not be all in? Would you help me thank the Gomez's for sharing their story? I want to ask you to take out this commitment card that was in your guidebook. If, if you don't have it with you, that's fine. In the middle of the guidebook, there's a sample commitment card. And I just want to walk through this with you kind of uh, just again, and, and just knowing that this is kind of what we're praying over um, in this series and in this season. And, and next week, Sunday, November 13th, we're, we're coming together to make these commitments together. But you'll notice that this is a two-year commitment. And this is that, that middle box in the middle, the total two-year commitment. It's, it's a total giving. It's not just above and beyond. This is what we're committing and, and covenanting with the Lord and saying, hey, this is what we're going to surrender or as our first and best as, as a sacrifice to the Lord. And, and so you see there in the, in the middle, that's our total, but you, the part in the blue is just a worksheet. It just kind of help you get there if you, if you need that. But there is one box on here that says gifts from our, uh, our stored resources. That, that could be savings or, or anything else that's of value that, that maybe the Lord is saying, hey, you could, you could steward this better for the kingdom of God. And so the, the real question though, as we look at these cards is, is, ours, is our all on the altar? Are we bringing our, our, our first and best? For, for some of you, you're gonna be giving for the very first time. And man, I'm so excited for you and what God is going to do in your heart and life as you, as you begin to give for the first time. Some, you're gonna be giving more than you've ever given before. For some of you, it's going to be staying the same just because staying the same is gonna be a sacrifice, like whether it's in this economy or in a new job or with a new salary. For some of you, it might even be less because 
of a job or a sacrifice or whatever in this next season. That, that's, those are all really just semantics. That, that what's important is, is what's on your card representing your first and best. A, a, a sacrifice of, of faith and surrender. See, this whole thing's not about meeting the needs of God. He has no needs. It's about him having total control and dominance in our hearts. And so this is a response of worship, just like Abraham said. We're, we're going to worship. It's gonna be a sacrifice, it's gonna cost us something, but, but we're going to worship. It's what David said in 1 Chronicles 29, verse three. He said, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I am giving all because of my heart for the Lord, because of my heart for the Lord's people, because of my heart for his word and for, his, for the worship of God and for the nations to know the one true God, because of my heart for God, because my, my heart is stirred and, and, and fired up for the Lord, like because of my love for God and the place that he holds in my heart, I am giving And so what does it look like in this season for you to give your first and best, to give by faith, to give in a way that's a sacrifice that declares that we are totally and completely surrendered to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure it's some of you, like at this point, some of you are like, dude, you're crazy or you're pressuring us or you're being legalistic or what I I know there's been all kinds of responses like that. And, And you're right, I might be crazy. You're absolutely right. I'd rather be crazy than comfortable though. Like, I'm just gonna be real with you. I'd I'd rather be crazy than comfortable. You see, when you're comfortable, anything that challenges or undermines your comfort usually sounds pretty crazy. In the middle of the 19th century, when Harriet Tubman was leading the Underground Railroad, there was a a meeting of people of kind of like minds, former slaves and white people who were trying to to help the cause. And in the movie, Harriet, there's a reenactment of this meeting. Now, obviously things have been dramatized and, and, and we don't have exactly what they said at this meeting or whatever, but in the movie, there's a line that's absolutely breathtaking. Some former slaves and Harriet and some white, there's all kinds of people meeting. There's some political leaders and they're talking about this underground railroad and getting slaves from the South to the North and into Canada. And it's about five or 600 miles by foot. And some people in the meeting start talking about how it's it's too risky. It's too long of a journey. It's too dangerous. There's, There's just, there's no way we can keep this up. And Harriet Tubman turns to the group in the movie and says this, you've gotten too comfortable. You forgot what it was like as a slave. If you're not, if you're not willing to sacrifice and risk to get these slaves from the South up into the North where they can be free or into Canada, you you must've forgotten what it was like to be a slave because there's no amount of danger or risk or discomfort that is worth not doing this. She said, you you guys have gotten too comfortable. You forgot what it was like to be a slave. And isn't that true for some of us? 
who were slaves to sin. Slaves, Ephesians 2 says, to our master, the devil. Some of us have forgotten what it was like to be slaves and we've gotten way too comfortable. We've forgotten that there are families in our city, in our country, among unreached people groups that are under enemy control. Years later in the mid 20th century, in about 1942, when Nazi Germany was ravaging Europe and exterminating an entire people group, our enemy was taking control of one city and one nation after the next. Majority of Americans understood the need to sacrifice in order to achieve victory. During the spring of 1942, a rationing program was established that set limits on the amount of gas, food, clothing that families could purchase. Families were issued ration stamps where they were used to buy their allotment of everything from meat, sugar, fat, butter, vegetables, fruit, gas, tires, clothing, fuel. The U.S. Office of War Information released posters in which Americans were urged to do less, to do with less so that they'll have enough. Who are, who are the they? Were U.S. troops. Individuals and communities conducted drives for the collection of scrap metal, aluminum cans, rubber, all of which were recycled and used to produce armaments. Alternative to rationing, Americans were planting victory gardens in which they grew their own food. By 1945, some 20 million such victory gardens were in use and accounted for about 40% of all vegetables consumed in the U.S. In light of this, Ralph Winter, a U.S. missiologist, which means he's a theologian in the area of missions, he said this, that God's people in a prosperous land like America simply cannot live as though there were not thousands and millions of people and people groups under enemy control. And he called Christians to live with what was called a wartime mentality, a wartime mentality, a mentality of sacrifice that says there are people in cities and unreached people groups under enemy control. And so we don't live in peacetime as Christians. We're at war. And I agree with Winter. As Christians, we should have a wartime mentality where we are all, all in on the mission that Jesus has given us. Not, not some giving all or all giving some, but all of us, all in. Can we get real for just a minute here? Like one day, you're going to be in heaven, you're gonna be in the kingdom of God forever with people who have paid a great price, who have sacrificed much, including their lives for the sake of the gospel. You're, you're, gonna, you're gonna meet Stephen, the very first Christian martyr who died preaching the gospel. You're gonna meet Peter who was crucified on an X-shaped cross for preaching the gospel. You're gonna meet Paul who had his head chopped off because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel and making disciples and, and planting churches. You're gonna meet Thomas who church history tells us went down to India and was speared by a tribe for preaching the gospel. 
You're gonna meet reformers like Luther and Calvin and others who paid a great price for their commitment to the gospel and to the word of God. You're gonna meet Jim and Elizabeth Elliot who, who died preaching the gospel to an unreached people group. You're gonna meet martyrs from China and Russia and Asia and Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Like you're gonna meet martyrs who have died for their faith in Christ. And you're gonna hear their stories like for all of eternity. Brother, sister, what's your story? Pete, Peter, tell, tell me your story. Paul, what's your story? Jim Elliott, what's your, what's your story? You're gonna hear stories like theirs for all of eternity. But my guess is, and I like to imagine because it really challenges me, that a Peter or a Paul, a Thomas, a Stephen, they're gonna turn to you and they're gonna say, brother, Sister, tell me your story. What's your story? I don't know about you, but I don't want a story that's, I occupied resources of the most prosperous land that's ever existed on the face of the planet. I don't want a story that I was more devoted to secondary things than I were to primary things. I don't want a story where I was more committed to stuff than I was to the spread of the gospel. You're gonna be talking to people who have died for the gospel. What's your story gonna be? Come on, get real for a second. You think I'm crazy? Wait till you meet Peter. Wait till you meet Paul. Let's get real. We've adopted some sort of casual American comfortable Christianity. And we've gotten so used to it that anything that sounds extreme, that threatens our comfort, sounds like legalism, sounds like pressure, sounds crazy. But casual, comfortable American Christianity is not where we come from, people. Our DNA, our history is people like Peter, it's people like Paul, it's people like Stephen. That's where we come from. That's the spirit that we've inherited. We go to church and we're watching clocks and ready to get out. The people that have gone before us have died for Jesus. Let's get real. What's your story gonna be? I, I, I want a story. I want a story that, that I live for a name and a story that is so much bigger than me. And, and so if that's going to be true of me, if that's gonna be true for you, we have got to aggressively confront and run from and address this casual, comfortable American Christianity. We have got to aggressively attack this idol that we have grown so accustomed to that it sounds totally crazy to abandon. We gotta, we gotta aggressively confront that. And so that's what we're gonna do here. Like if you haven't figured it out already, like we're not about checking off some sort of religious box to come to church. That's why you're still here and it's 12.52 PM. We could care less about going through the routine. 
We're, we're here to passionately follow Jesus, to know him, to be disciples, to go on mission with Jesus. Like that's why we're here. That's who we are. And I'm challenging you to stand with him, to stand with us for the cause of Christ in this city and in our world, in this time, in our generation. We're gonna live for the purposes of God. And we're gonna have a story to tell because our all is going on the altar. Would you pray with me? God, we are praying that your Holy Spirit would just stir in us a devotion like David had for the Lord God, for the people of God, for the purposes of God. Would you stir a devotion in us, God, that, that leads to us living for a name and for a story that is so much bigger than us. God, would your, would your spirit move in our hearts that, that we might release our grip on the stuff, that, that just the earthly things in this life. And that by the spirit's power, we would take hold of that which is eternal, that we would take hold of glory, of a name, of a story that is so much bigger than ours. And so God, let us, by your spirit's power, quit distracting ourselves with one thing after the next that will never satisfy us. God, by the Spirit's working in our life, let us take hold of eternal, of glory, that we would live a life that makes sense in light of eternity. God, we pray that your Spirit would stir our hearts to put our all on the altar. And so as Abraham said, here we are, God.